Right, let's um, just bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, this particular word today, I pray that you would turn our hearts towards its potential for us, that we'd really see what's in here, because uh, Lord, to me, this is something special, and, and I hope that you can use me as your instrument to show my brothers and sisters here the same thing, and I ask that in Jesus' name, amen. So after a very long break, uh, we're going to return to our exploration of 2 Corinthians, and today we'll be looking at chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, so if you could please turn there now. Um, If you happen to be using an electronic device, I'll be preaching from the New King James Version. Now before we begin, I want to ask you to just take a moment to reflect on your past. I want you to look back into it and try to remember the very worst, most painful, eye-watering, knee-weakening thing that's ever happened to you. Yeah? Can you remember that? Was it a personal injury or sickness? Did someone close to you uh, suffer or die? Were you unfairly treated? Maybe you've even suffered from multiple problems like this for many years. What did that feel like? Now, if I were to say to you that no matter how horrible that was in the moment, that really was of no consequence at all. A passing thing, like the lightest of breezes that comes and goes and is barely felt on your face. I'd imagine you'd be quite taken aback by that attitude, if not openly offended. Well, on a first reading, that's what today's passage seems to say, and that's pretty hard to digest. So let's read it now, examine it more closely, and learn why the Holy Spirit, through Paul, chose to write what he did. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and I'll read from verse 16 to verse 18. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is building for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So as always, if we want to make the proper sense of things, we can't separate the bit we are looking at today from the rest of the text, more so because we see this word, therefore, at the beginning. What is the rest of chapter 4 about then? Well, most broadly, it's about continuing to do the work of the gospel in the face of trials and strong opposition. And how is that expressed more specifically? In verses 1 to 6, we read that the importance of the ministry given to Paul by God is the thing that keeps him going. It gives him heart to carry on. Although many accuse him of deceit, and many will just not listen to what he has to say because they have been blinded by Satan. But that doesn't stop Paul. His desire continues to be the gospel light shining in the darkness. In verses 7 to 12, Paul acknowledges that, yes, He is continually experiencing many kinds of strong pressure from outside elements, 
and that even includes mortal danger to himself. And on top of that is the inevitable deterioration of his body. Yet, despite all these difficulties, he presses on for Jesus' sake so that the world can see Christ revealed through him. Verses 13 to 15 are another explanation to his readers of why he sticks at his task despite all these trials. He reminds them that faith must lead to action. Belief in Christ and speaking about that belief cannot be separated. And this is so important that even if such speech leads to his death, he is absolutely determined to continue his mission because no matter what happens, he knows in his heart that he will have eternal life in Christ. Well, that brings us to today's verses, verses 17 and 18, which are both an expansion and a repetition of what he's written, but with a further dollop of encouragement. In fact, it's a pretty large dollop. We can sum it all up under the term perseverance. We're getting an explanation of why a believer, and remember that's not somebody else, that's you, should keep at the task that the Lord has given them under the most trying of circumstances. And speaking of which, let's establish from the very beginning that Paul isn't someone who doesn't know about suffering. Because if we look forward to chapter 11 of the same book, we can read about his personal experience in the matter. And I'm sure you're quite familiar with this. He's, he writes, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the deep, swimming. In journeys often in perils of water, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils amongst false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other thing, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches." Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? <laughs> now, I cannot know your own life journey, but speaking for myself, I can definitely say that I'm glad to not be as educated on the matter of suffering as Paul was. Let's give it some thought again. Think about yourself or of the folk that you know who have endured much. What's been the effect of that experience? I'll bet it's not to tell others that it was light and momentary. And yet here we see just that. Why? Why do we see this radical difference to everyone's usual description of suffering? Well, of course, it's to grab our attention, to make sure that we don't miss the point, that we would be comforted, encouraged, encouraged to carry on in our service for the Lord, no matter what things are like. Now, to define and illuminate that point, <laughs> I know this is going to excite you, we really need some Greek. Because as confronting as the English version is, I believe it lacks considerably in comparison to the original. I really want you to see that what we have here is potentially a truly transformational verse it really is if 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 you can just grasp this if you can get this and i mean that if it lodges with full power in your heart 
and not just in your head, you must see that it calls us to radically change the way we view and do everything. So let's look at some of the key words because it will help us to get a handle on the depth of the comparison that Paul is making here to fully understand what he means and hopefully to be changed. So this is, this is the original Greek verse. Anybody care to take a crack at reading it? No, neither do I. Anyway, the first key words that I'd like you to see there are paratika, elaphron, and flipsios. And don't be confused about the order which they arrive in because Greek uh, sentence construction is different to English, even the unusual as variant that we use here in New Zealand. Now, I'm glad somebody got it. Paratika means temporary. Not like those road signs that we see everywhere that say temporary but stay there for months and months. <laughs> but it means transient, uh, ephemeral, really, really short-lived. Now, ephemeral is not a word that I guess we use very often, but it's, it's perfect because it's derived from another Greek word that means lasting only one day. And that's an excellent opposite to the mention of eternity that we will see just now in verse 18. Elaphron means not heavy, easy to bear. I wonder if you've had the experience of somebody saying, will you please move that box for me? Going to pick up the box expecting, uh, uh, and it just comes up like that. Okay, That's what it's like. That's what it describes, something that's light as anything. Thlipsios means to crush or to, to press together, and it's a strong term that doesn't refer to minor inconveniences, but real hardships. That's the idea that our afflictions, the things that trouble us, will seem at the time suffocatingly heavy and pressing. The picture we can build from these words is what seems to us during the actual experiences unendurably heavy. A crushing agony that we beg and we plead to stop now, immediately, if not sooner. That experience will one day be faintly remembered as the shadowiest of pressures that was only felt for the briefest of moments. What do you think of that idea? Does it seem possible or does the crocodile hanging off your leg right now demand all of your attention? Now, please don't misunderstand that what Paul has written here means that our afflictions are not real or painful. If that was so, he would not make reference to his own. The problem that he is addressing is how the mental and physical anguish we experience is much worse when we think that there is no attached meaning or purpose. And that's why verse 17 carries on to say this is not the case, that in fact affliction can build something something quite marvelous and enduring. We read, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Okay, it's time for more Greek. First, the process. Now, affliction, as we read here, has a purpose. And if that's so, then something physical must be happening, which is why we read 
that it is working. It's actually doing something. In the science of physics, the word work has a very specific meaning. In simple terms, it measures the amount of energy that's used to move an object a distance. It links together cause and effect because an object will not move at all unless some work is done. And so it is with affliction here. It does work to move us in a particular direction. The Greek word for working is katakazomai, which means to labor work or engage in an activity that needs a lot of effort. It carries the idea of doing so fully and thoroughly in order to be sure that it is finished. Paul's reminding us that God's not going to stop halfway in producing this glory, but in fact, he's going to go way beyond our human expectations. He who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. There's a question here. If work is being done deliberately to meet a goal, what is the goal? Well, it's pretty obvious. It's this far more and exceeding eternal weight of glory. So how much is this far more and exceeding, we might ask? Well, this phrase, far more exceeding, is translated from the Greek, hyperbolon, ice hyperbolon. And hyperbolon might be a word that is recognizable to you because we still use a derivation of it as the word hyperbole. And hyperbole is a term in English uh, when deliberate exaggeration is made in speech or writing for effect. For example, I might say to you, I saw millions of cars today when I want you to understand that actually I saw an unusually large number of them because, of course, nobody could actually see millions of cars in one day. But we do understand from when I say millions of cars that the intention is to create the, the idea that something out of the ordinary has happened. Well, the weight of glory needs that. It needs to be properly exaggerated. It is very not ordinary. In fact, it's so gigantic that even Paul cannot find the words to properly ex express it. So he writes, hyperbolon, ice hyperbolon. He is literally saying extraordinary, overgreat, extreme, supreme, utterly beyond all measure of comparison to a far greater degree, multiplied then and piled upon, extraordinary, overgreat, extreme, supreme, utterly beyond all measure of comparison to a far greater degree. This is hyperbolan squared, hyperbolan piled upon hyperbolan, glory piled on glory. Do you see that? And this is why by comparison he can state that what is so very, very awful for us here on earth can be described as light and momentary. As I've already said, the reality of our bad experiences are not being denied, but they are utterly dwarfed by the reality of the glory that awaits all those who trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord and work for his purposes. This immensity is not temporary or untouchable. It is eternal and it has actual weight. It is certain and real. It is something that makes the endurance of even mortal affliction worthwhile. And this is why we, we ought to grasp that this is a transformational verse. 
once th one that can radically change our lives. For if we grasp the enormity of what is being offered, that hyperbolon, ice hyperbolon, it must put a whole new perspective on what we will be prepared to endure and do for the sake of Christ. Okay. So, how? How do I grasp it? Should I memorize this verse and repeat it a thousand times? Off, off. Perhaps I should post this verse on the walls of my house. Perhaps I should get an electronic billboard and broadcast it to the whole of Wanganui. What must I actually do to be transformed and what would that look like? Well, the answer is in verse 18. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Our ability to endure affliction depends on how we look at things. I wonder if you've heard the term beer goggles. Hmm? It describes the way that things can appear to be very different to reality when under the influence of excess alcohol. For example, jumping off the roof seemed to be a great idea when I had my beer goggles on. Hmm. Hmm. An unvaried diet of what the world delivers has the same effect on the believer. What we see, and remember that also includes what we feel and think, is distorted and limited so that how we are prepared to act is also limited. We know what we ought to do, but we may be distracted by the pain of a past or present experience. We might be held back by the fear of what others might say. But then that is like living with a permanently attached pair of those aforementioned goggles. Our potential is lost because we just don't see as clearly as we should. So take those goggles off. Look beyond the immediate to the immensity and our motivation must then change. There are very different possibilities and outcomes further out there to those that we can only imagine from behind the goggles. And they are not, as we read here, things that just happen to us without rhyme or reason. They have real consequences. They build for us an indescribable weight of glory. So, again, let's get practical. How do we actually change where we look? Well, I believe we must work to weed the world out of us. And so I have three suggestions. Firstly, do not be informed by the world alone. I'm not saying that we should entirely exclude the storm of incoming news and gossip from our lives because that would be foolish and unhelpful but we should not aim to explore the whole cyclone at once every day. A satellite picture is enough to be properly informed. Lingering in the storm will only depress and distract us. Instead, we should aim to make God's word the oasis for our information thirst, because it's only there that we're going to find absolute truth. In it, we will discover who we are, and what we were made for. 
We will learn who made us and why and what he is like and what he requires from us and the amazing future that he promises us. It will give us the proper perspective on life, the universe, and everything. And this means much more time reading and pondering on our Bibles, soaking in commentaries, listening to sermons, doing studies, attending a home group. These are very practical things. Secondly, do not seek the world's rewards alone. Not long ago, Colfane reminded us of that great quote by William Carey. Our greatest fear should not be of failure, but of succeeding in life on things that don't really matter. We're not called to live entirely apart from the world in a cave or a separate community. That wasn't the model that was given to us by Jesus. He moved freely in the world and sometimes in places that shocked and horrified those around him but he never did so in anything other than his own terms. We should be cautious because there are some pitfalls to being in the world. Aside from the usual and obvious temptations to sin, it's far too easy to get pulled into the world's way of doing things, to chasing success in what we do for work or play. But there's a problem there because all of us have a set and limited amount of time and energy. Whilst it's good and after all our scriptural calling to have a balance between church life and world life because by doing that we show the world what a proper relationship with God looks like, we shouldn't be upsetting that balance by becoming too invested in pursuing human approval for our efforts rather than God's. It might feel nice for a moment to be the biggest or fastest or strongest or richest, but you know what? All of that effort is going to be completely destroyed and forgotten when Jesus returns for the final time. And that's going to happen. On the other hand, the Lord's approval is eternal and genuinely meaningful. It lasts. If we work for that and we consequently suffer for that, then we will be using our time as a wise investment in future glory. That's what today's verses are about. Thirdly, do not be limited by the world. The world says that because you are too young or short or slow or fat or whatever, you, you cannot aim for greater things. But those the Lord calls, he also equips to do surprising things. Think about Moses. When God called him, Moses said, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now, therefore go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Well, we don't need to hear the rest of that story because we already know how it works out. Moses is one of the greatest men that ever lived. And he is reviewed, sorry, he is revered amongst Jews and Christians alike to this very day. It's certain that God has got work prepared for every believer. 
Scripture confirms that repeatedly. And this means that he has got work prepared for you. But he has also prepared you for that work. It doesn't matter what critics from the sidelines might say, but you are able to do what the Lord intends you to do. That might be a very tiny thing by the world's standards. Maybe you're a person who diligently prays through the church directory every week and nobody ever sees or knows about it. Maybe, maybe you're another Moses. But the thing is to look to the things that are unseen, to set them first, to seek the Lord's will for you and then to do it despite any heckling from the audience. It's almost certain that somewhere on that journey it's going to hurt. Perhaps a lot. But it's promised here, when you arrive at your destination, to hear the Lord say, Well done, good and faithful servant. None of that pain will matter one tiny bit. None of it. So, I have a couple of final comments. Firstly, I hope that you've noticed that there's a common theme running through all of I've said, which is that the afflictions that we're talking about are always connected with doing the Lord's work. Please don't think that if you go out and buy a bed of nails in the hope that suffering on it is going to build your weight of glory, it's not going to. It's just going to give you a load of scars and perhaps a chat to a nice person in a white coat. Instead, seek God's will for your life. Execute that work. Suffer for that work. Enjoy the sub sublime fruits of that work. And my final comment is to say this. It came to me a while back that the person who stands behind this pulpit most often stands up from a pew in a congregation and comes up here to speak. And that's exactly as it should be. Because the person standing here is a sinner saved by grace. The same as everybody out here. If I stand here and make this call and say, this is a transformational verse. This has only just come to me. This is a journey that I'm on with the rest of you. But I am so excited by what I see here. I'm also a little bit scared. But I ask you to ponder on what we have heard today and see what it might mean for your life. And hopefully, hopefully you will take it on board and you will not be the same person from this day forward. And I pray that will be the case. Let's finish now. Bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that through the work of your Spirit in our hearts, that you would reveal to us just a little inkling of this great promise that you have made for us. I'm not sure we could take the whole because you have you have done so much. You, you will give us so much and none of it we deserve. 
that Lord, because it's so, we can't, we just can't carry on doing the same thing every day. And I pray that you would help us to fulfill the work that you've prepared for us. Not for our own glory, but for yours and for your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.